this, this is going to blow your mind, um, but every once in a while, my wife and I have a fight. Um, I, I know, I know. Um, and, you know, we've been married long enough that I can think about things that we fought about as newlyweds and think about the things that I, we fight about now. And um, I can see similarities, like common themes that come out. Uh, there's things that maybe it's, maybe the exact expression of the fight is a little bit different, but the same sorts of faults that I have that come out are the same. And when I think about that and reflect on it, I think, I, I kind of thought I would be further along than I am. You know, I, I thought that like, okay, we've been married a while and at some point this issue will get resolved and we won't ha- it won't be something that comes up anymore. And I think, okay, well, you know, we've made some progress, right? So then maybe like 10 or 20 years from now, maybe there will be more progress. Then at some point, it's going to be resolved, right? And, and as I reflect on that and I think about it and it's like, okay, there... Maybe, maybe there's some growth, but it's just happening a lot slower than I wish. And I think that if all of us were to start reflecting on our lives, I think there would be things that we would say, um, I, I think that there's some growth, but it just happens so much slower than I wish, and it happens too slow. I want tomorrow to be better than today, and so what can I do to move this along? And what can I do to make sure that things are, the wheels are turning and that there's growth? And so then when I get further down the road, there actually is victory over whatever the struggle is or, or there's, there's maturity where there is immaturity today. And it's very easy in, for us in this place to find some sort of mechanism, some sort of rule, some sort of uh, strategy to address this, and that if, I, if there's some way that I can address this, if there's some way that I can take control over this, if there's some way that I can be sure that I'm trying harder, some other lever that I can pull, then maybe there will be growth and I can have victory sooner. And sometimes it's, it's almost like if you can think of someone who's an addict, and if that person was to tell you, you know, a month from now, I'm not going to have this addiction anymore. You know, or they're going to set some time frame of I'm going to have freedom at this point. And you would kind of look at them and you would think, you don't understand how this works. Like, you're not understanding what an addiction is. And there's a part of us that it's like, I think we don't understand that for ourselves and how we grow in our own faith that we want to say, at this, at this line, I'm no longer going to struggle with this. It'll be done and it'll be resolved with. And we need to kind of start saying, do we, do we understand how this works, that we don't have control over this? Like we, we are partnering with God, but we are not on our own deciding the timeline of our growth. And so it's very easy for us to fall back and think of what are some kind of rules or structures that I can put in place to make sure that things are moving along the way that I think that they should be moving along. You know, we're in the midst of this series in Galatians where, where Paul is talking about the, the exclusivity 
the sufficiency of what Christ did for us on the cross. And he's saying that all that we need and all of our spiritual needs are met and centered in what Jesus did for us on the cross. This includes our justification, our standing before God. This also includes our sanctification and how we mature before God. And so he starts arguing with the Galatians and saying, talking about how they've gone off course and drifted away from the gospel. He comes back and says, we need to remember how it is that we grow in our faith. Because the way that we grow in our faith looks like the way that we entered into our faith. And so we're going to be in Galatians 3 today. And he starts off in, this, in his argument, uh, he starts off by asking the Galatians to reflect on their own experience of how they came to faith. He asks them, what worked for you? How did you get here to begin with? And so we're going to be in Galatians 3, and I'm going to start in verse, in verse 2. He says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by, mean, by the means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Paul here is very combative, and you can see and hear his anger in this passage You know, this is a passage that tells us uh, and describes his audience to us. These are are Christians that he's speaking to. He's saying these are people that have received the Spirit. And as, as we think about the gospel, one of the promises that the gospel gives us is it says that when we place our faith in Jesus, that we are given the Holy Spirit, and that the Spirit resides in each of us. The Spirit is, is our assurance that, that we have salvation and that salvation is secure. It says the Spirit is in us that's guiding us and directing us in our, in our life. The Spirit speaks to God the Father on our behalf. And he says, we have the Holy Spirit. And he says, what got you the Holy Spirit to begin with? He says, it was never about your performance. It was never about how good you were. It was never about your ability to achieve anything that it's always been about us believing in what Christ did for us. And so he says, if you, if you got there, if you, if you accepted the gospel, if you understood what the gospel was about and that that's how you came into relationship with God, why did you change course? Why do you think it's by faith that you come into a relationship with God, but then you need works to sustain that relationship? He says this, this doesn't make sense, and so he calls them foolish, and he calls them foolish rightly because it's so illogical that we understood how we got here, and so then why, why are we going crazy and changing directions? Here when he, when he talks in, in verse 3 about we are doing things by the work of the flesh, this is a euphemism for our sinful nature. This, this is a statement that it tells us we can be doing good things for the wrong reasons. Or we can be doing good things and th- that can be empowered by our sin itself. Like, that's so, that's so strange that you can be doing good things. Like, outwardly, you can be expressing things of, of generosity, 
Uh, you can be doing things that seem very righteous and good. You can be doing things that are very spiritual, it seems, and yet it can be done from a bad place. And ultimately, it, it, it becomes worthless. He's saying that we know the necessity of salvation is by grace, but yet we still have this tendency to drift off course and to drift back and think that I need to get it together through my own works, that I need to make sure I'm holding up my end of the bargain. There's this natural suspicion that we have around grace, that I don't know if I can trust this enough. I can trust it to a certain point, but I don't know if I should continue in that because I don't want to be slacking. And so when it comes to the point where we start looking in ourselves in the mirror and realize we're not a finished product, those are often the times where we say, it must not be working. There must be something more I should be doing. Right? Because if I was really taking advantage of all that God has for me, shouldn't I be further along and shouldn't some of these things be issues of the past that I no longer carry with me? And so we're tempted to, to find some sort, of, some sort of standard that we need to reach, some sort of way that we need to catalyze our growth, and then we'll move along faster, and then we'll be who we're supposed to be. You know, as I, as I think about the religious leaders that Jesus interacted with, I, the way that they're described is they were very good people. Like, do you know what I mean? They, they took the Bible, they took the Old Testament very seriously. They knew it far better than any of us here in this room would know it. They, they uh, were described as people who would go to the ends of the earth to make one convert. Like, this, these are what the Pharisees were described like. And then Jesus still looks at them and says, you are like whitewashed tombs. He says, outwardly, you are beautiful, you are magnificent, immaculate. But internally, he says, you're unclean and full of death. Like, that it, it's just mind-boggling that people, outwardly they looked so good. They did so many good things. They were things that, like, if your kid looked like a Pharisee, you would be like, man, I was a great parent. Like, he's doing everything. He's always in church. He's always reading his Bible. He's going on mission trips. He's doing this and this and this. And yet, there's still something where it's like, how is it possible that they can have all of that and yet their hearts are so far from God. And I think we can get to this place because we start losing confidence that grace is really true and that God is really at work within us. And there's some part of me that says, I need to take control over this because this is going too slow. I must not be, I must not be holding up to, to my end of the bargain, and so I need to move this along, and so this falls on me now to move things forward. But if we trust God to justify, shouldn't we also trust God to sanctify us? You know, I, I've, I've said this before, but I, I think such an important question for us to ask is, after we sin, 
You know, after we've we've come to terms and look ourselves in the mirror and say, yeah, this is this is what I did and what what and this was wrong. Especially in those moments of shame, where do we go? You know, our our view of God determines this. If if my view is I need to go and clean myself up somehow. Like, if there's so many good things I need to do to kind of counteract what I did, or I need to deprive myself or punish myself from something, uh, then I can go and I can move forward in my relationship with God. That tells me something about how I view my ownership of dealing with my sin. But if instead, in the moments of those shame, I say the one place I do need to go is to God, that tells me something else about how I trust in his grace. If in the moments of those shame, I say the one safe place it is for me to go, the place that I most desperately need to run to is to God because he is the one that can deal with my sin. That there's nothing I can do. It's all meaningless trying to do extra things to kind of tip the scales. The one place I do need to run to is God. And this tells us a lot about how we see God's grace. And if we really trust in it. If we really trust that it's enough. It tells us if we are willing to give up control and trust in his grace. You know, this... I. This feels so uncomfortable, but um, God, wants, God wants a relationship with you more than he wants righteousness from you. Like, the, that feels wrong to say. But God would rather have you trust him than to have godliness come out from you. And we, we, we see this, Romans, Romans 5, 8, this verse... God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, he died for us. Like, before we did anything, there was, he was not responding to something that we did. He was responding, if anything that we did, he was responding to our sin. It wasn't, he wasn't waiting for us to get it together a little bit or meet some standard or at least you know, keep it to 10 sins a day or something like that and then I'll die for you. He responded to us. He initiated this with us. He loved us. He made the path for us. He provided forgiveness for us before we did anything. God would rather that you trust him, that he would rather have a relationship from you than you, have, than you sin less. This is uncomfortable. Tim Keller even describes it like this. He says, somehow we can be both accepted and sinful. And this, this flies in the face of what we feel as religious people. Because shouldn't I be more accepted if there's less sin and there's more godliness? That's not the gospel. Our relationship with God begins by faith. It continues by faith. And this is what we've experienced. This is, as if you are a Christian, this is how you got here. As Paul continues in this passage, as he continues talking about this and how to persevere in faith and not to, to uh, turn away, he says, 
uh, he, he starts looking back at arguments that we see from Scripture. He turns back to the Old Testament and he says, let's, let's look at how the law is during the Old Testament. So we're going to skip down to, to verse 10 now. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. If this, if this language seems strange, like the language of, of curse seems strange, when the Israelites entered into the Mosaic Covenant, when they uh, embraced the law and submitted themselves to it, they were told blessings and curses. If, if they were to honor the law and to keep it, they were told what blessings they would, they would receive from it. Blessings, most of these centered around, they would have peace, they would have physical prosperity, they would also have the, the hand, uh, the blessing hand of God over them and, and worship of him. The contrast to that is if they didn't keep the law, the, these curses would be on them, which would be the, the opposite, that they are, there would be war, they would be at risk of losing their inhabitants in, in the promised land, they, there would be famine and drought, and they, they could risk losing the intimacy that they had with God. And so he, Paul here is saying, if you're really going to be under the law, understand that this is what you're risking Understand that, that the, these curses, that the, the benefits of God's grace are not going to be on you. Are you sure that's what you really want? Is, are you sure that this is what you, that you are going to fail at this? It's futile. Are you sure you want to keep going down this road? Like, are you sure you want there to be some kind of standard that you can measure yourself up against and that you can try to achieve thinking that once you get there, things with you and God are good, that you're going to be maturing at the right rate? And he says, if that's really the case, you're not going to meet that standard. You're going to be disappointed. But not just disappointed. It's going to be futile and just wasted effort. See, I think the, the big problem with this is that it teaches us that we don't need to cry out for help. Like, it teaches us that I can, my sin is manageable. It's not that bad. I can cover this and I can deal with this. It's under my control, and so I can just need to try a little bit harder next time and there's going to be a different result. It teaches us independence from God, doesn't teach us dependence on him. And so it just, the, the weight of this then, if it falls on my shoulders, then I should be able to find, I can, if I just try a little bit harder, if I just find the right strategy, if I just figure out the right way to do this, then I'm going to have victory. And if it falls on us, then we're the ones that are in control of this, and we don't need help. It's so sad because this, this misses who God is. It misses how he views us. 
God's never been a God that's looked at us and said, when you try hard enough, when you get your act together, then we can have a relationship together. Then I will change you. Then I will take you to the next level. It, it kind of, you know, in, in, there's sometimes this happens in movies where uh, you know, there's like one character who's in trouble and then this other character comes along and is like, I'll sacrifice myself for you and then the per, this other person gets to live. And there's always this exchange where like the, the, the sacrificing person says like, make your life count for something. And, and then like the, the person who's saved gets to go on and live. But, and, you know, it's like, that person maybe is like, thanks, but then they're also sarcastically like, thanks, because now I'm going to be neurotic for the rest of my life because I'm always going to wonder, did I do enough to make that person's sacrifice worth it? You know, and it's at that point, it's, is that what the gospel is about? Is the gospel about Jesus dying for us and then he's saying, make your life worth it, make it count for something, and then we're always trying to make it up to God, hoping that at some point we've satisfied him. Like, that's not what the gospel is about. God wants us to trust him. He wants us to be our God. He wants us to trust that he really does care about us that he really does have favor on us, that he actually does want what's best for us. You know, sometimes when, um, when we talk about grace and when we talk about, about living by faith and trusting in his grace, uh, the tendency is sometimes there's pushback that goes along the lines of this, of, well, if you're gonna talk about God's grace, then make sure you also talk about his holiness. Because if we just talk about God's grace, then we're all going to want to go crazy and just live in sin the whole time, thinking that we have liberty now and we can go and do what we want and there's no consequences for it. And this misses the point because God's grace and his holiness are not at odds to each other. Like, there, these are two, not two things that battle against each other, but it's the, for the very fact that God is righteous and holy, that's what makes God's grace so amazing, so marvelous, and so effective. And so when we want to say, uh, you know, don't, don't get carried away with grace, you've got to make sure you balance it out with something else. What it, what it reveals to us is our, ultimately our feeling of grace is needed, but... There's something else on my end that I need to be doing too, that I need to make sure that I'm taking God's holiness seriously so that way I don't abuse his grace. That we need some grace, but it needs to come in the context of a holy God so that way we're a little bit scared of him and taking, it, taking things seriously. This, this comes from a very unbiblical understanding of what God's grace is. This comes from an understanding of thinking that God's grace means getting away with sin. That that's what you get off the hook with God's grace and that's what it means, that there's no consequences for it and he's not going to spank you or whatever it is. And this is so unbiblical. Living by grace is more, 
is more uncomfortable and more unnatural for us than living under the law. Max Lucado put, puts it like this. He says, to accept grace, so living by faith, is to admit failure, a step we are hesitant to take. We ought to impress God with how good we are rather than confessing how great he is. Let me say that, that one more time. To accept grace is to admit failure. A step we are hesitant to take, we ought to impress God with how good we are rather than confessing how great he is. You know, and so when, when we talk about grace and when we think that and view grace with a suspicion that grace is just kind of like the soft, cuddly message that makes you feel good about God so that you can continue on, I say, no, we've missed the point. Because it's more natural for us to pursue the law and pursue some way that we can control our sin and manage our issues than it is to accept grace from God. Because if we're going to accept grace from God, we have to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, we failed. That this, my issues are beyond my control. That I can't fix it. And wouldn't all of us rather say, I, I made a little mistake, but it's a manageable mistake, rather than, and us be able to save face in that, rather than us get to the point of where we have to throw up our hands and say, this is more than I can deal with, that I actually did fail. Th this is why it's so much harder for us to accept grace and why we're so inclined to keep drifting off and saying, okay, I was saved by faith, but you know, my old nature tells me, you know, but I, I can manage this, and I can control this. I, I can get this together. I can, I can pull another lever, and, and things will be better tomorrow, and I'll fix it, and I'll speed this process along and be better. But when we, if we're going to live under grace, then, then that means we look at ourselves and we say, I failed. I need help. And we have to go to God with that. And say, God, I need your grace because I don't have this. This is beyond my control. And often it takes us getting to a place where we're broken before we can actually accept God's grace. takes us getting to the point where we say, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I've never met the standard. It's never been enough. And so in those places, we can either choose, I'm just going to walk away and be done. Or I can say, I've failed. And now if this is an opportunity for me to actually receive and experience God's grace. God's grace is not something that takes sin lightly. It's the thing that takes sin seriously. Trying to make ourselves into who God wants us to be gets us nowhere. As Paul continues, he says, he says this is what the law, where the law brought you. But he says there's an alternative to this. So this, this is what it looks like to, to walk by faith. This is in uh, verse 8. 
He says, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So the man, uh, so those who rely on faith and are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You know, he, Paul here is going back to the Old Testament and looking back at Abraham and how Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness is how it says. And he's saying this was the plan from the beginning. You know, sometimes when we think about the Old Testament, we think, like, how was a person righteous then? Was it about, like, their ability to to keep the law? Was, Was it something related to their moral achievement? And here he's saying... From the very beginning, we have been saved by faith. That from the very beginning, Abraham was righteous. He was saved because he believed God, not because of something good that he did or his ability to maintain some kind of standard. That this has always been God's plan. That it's always been by faith that we've been saved. And, and it's, I think it's so interesting when he, said, when he ma- refers back to this passage in Genesis where he says that Abraham believed God and, and he was righteous. Well, what did, what did Abraham do? It's like in, this, in the context of this is that God promised Abraham and he says, I will give you descendants, I will give you land, and I will, let you, I will make you into a nation that is a blessing to others. Abraham believed God, and then he's righteous. Like, what, what did Abraham do? He didn't do anything. He believed God. You know, and later on we see uh, expressions of Abraham's faith, but it's not the expressions of his faith that made him righteous. It's the faith that he had. Like, there wasn't anything in that moment for, for Abraham to do, and yet he's still called righteous. That we have always, it's salvation, being righteousness before God has always been about our willingness to trust him. Will, will we have faith in him? You know, and this continues, and we see this even in, in Philippians. Uh, Paul writes, and he writes in the context of thinking about all of his moral achievements in Philippians 3, and he says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, walking by faith means that we are trusting in, continuing to have faith, continuing to trust that God will provide for me what I need. This is, more than, this is more than trusting him for physical needs. This is trusting him for our spiritual needs. That when he says he really did forgive us, that he really did make us righteous, we are continuing to trust in that. That I can trust that he will meet my needs better than something else will. Abraham continued to trust God in his promise that he made to him. And so then we do see expressions of how he of how he had that faith. And we as Christians live in this. That our hearts should be motivated by a confidence 
in God's ability and willingness to give us what we need. That we don't need to, to look for his approval, that we already have his approval. And this is something that takes time for us to cultivate and, and develop. You know, I was, I was thinking about a conversation I had with a friend once, um, and he's uh, a married guy, and he's telling me about, we're talking about pornography. Um, and so he's telling me that, he was like, I could find ways, you know, structures to keep myself from acting out. Uh, I could get an internet filter, I could make sure that I was off my computer when I was home alone. There are different things that he could do uh, so that he wasn't acting out. You know, and pornography is something that, that uh, hurts marriages deeply. And he said, you know, there was the benefit of when I wasn't acting out, the, you know, the, the kind of the carnage that, that pornography brings didn't, didn't hurt the marriage. But just because there was the absence of acting out didn't mean the marriage was then healthy. Like the marriage didn't grow because of that, because of the absence of this, because there's still this underlying issue of what drives him to go to pornography that isn't met in a healthy way. It's just being ignored and masked and, and there's been a way to avoid it. And so he said what, what changed was, was he said, I had to find a way that I could get the, that need met from my wife in, in a different way. And so he said, yes, there, there was a physical intimacy element to this, but he's like, more than that, I had to learn that I could actually trust getting emotional connection from her. And so he said, instead of, I had to kind of redirect what I'm, what I'm wanting, and I have to trust that I can actually go to her and that what she will offer me will actually be more satisfying than what I could get through pornography. And so this is a much different thing than just saying, I'm going to find ways to limit how much I'm, I'm sinning, but actually I need to find a healthier way to, to meet these needs. And he said, and given enough time, I started to look at myself and say, say why would I even want to go to pornography when I can get my needs met with her? It, it's different, but it's so much more satisfying here that there's a deeper longing that I can get met there. And so I'm, I'm not sinning, not because I need some structure in place, but because I actually have a healthier way to go. There's actually a better place, a place that I can bring that need and it can get met. And not that, not that the struggle just disappears and goes away, but he says, I, I found myself looking and saying, why would I even go to this? when I know that this is available. In our relationship with God, we need to trust that we can bring our needs before God and that he will meet those needs. We need to trust that he actually can satisfy those needs. That God actually looks at me and he looks at me with favor and he will meet those needs and maybe it looks different than the way that I wish those needs would be met, but it's going to be a better way. And I have to trust God with that, and I have to do this in an ongoing way. Avoiding sin, 
managing our struggles and using different strategies, it doesn't bring us closer to God. And so instead, I need to go before God trusting that he can bring healing, trusting that he can satisfy my needs. And so I need to trust him that I'm accepted, that I don't need to perform for him. I can look at the spiritual, spiritual disciplines and I can trust that I've already been declared righteous and so I get the freedom to choose how I engage with them. And it can come from a heart that's not obligated, but a heart that chooses when I'm going to. I can go before God and I can trust that he offers forgiveness for me and he has the capacity to bring healing after I sin. And that he's not going to forgive me, but then still give me kind of the, the irritated eye afterwards. These are the things that we have to choose to believe about God, that these are his promises. They affect the way that we live. This is what we're called to do. And this is what God offers. God's plan has always been for us to trust him. And this includes his provision of salvation and sanctification. You know, the, the, the importance of victory over sin, the importance for us to grow in our, in our faith is something that's important. The issue isn't should we grow, the issue is what is the best way to grow or what is maybe the only way to grow. It's a question of how, not if. And if we're going to walk by faith, this means that I need to keep looking at God and keep looking to him acknowledging that I am not sufficient to deal with my own issues and that I am in need. And it's from this place that, that our hearts become open to actually receiving grace from him. And in Galatians, the promise is that God will meet these needs.